back with another episode of the Perspectives Podcast. As you can see, this is a special episode. This is our first live episode. It's well, first live in person. First live in person episode, correct. Because we're always live on the internet. Live. Right. So, your usual <laughs> intro. I'm one of your hosts, Lady Bro Flacco. To the right of, to the left of me is our co-host. Holden Stefan Roy, say hi Holden. Hi Holden. <laughs> and today we have a veteran, a legend, New York City God, EO Dub veteran, Moto Technique. Nah, for real. Big legend here. Thank you so much for you know, I appreciate y'all taking the me. time Thank you, man. to... Sit with us. I appreciate it. I know how crazy it's getting. Nah, it's all good. We're in an undisclosed location in New York City, and I figured we have an, a lovely conversation. And sure, you can ask me anything, um, just about anything hip hop related or music or history, politics. You know, I'm an open book, bro. Unless you want me to talk about people's cases. Then. Nah, 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 yeah, nah, 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 I'm sorry, I have we nothing. We keep that close. This is really just your life story, right? So, like, we usually start out with our set of questions. I start out with, why don't you tell the people who you are, where you're from, and where your parents are from? Okay, uh, my name is Felipe Coronel. Um, people know me as a mortal technique. I was born in Hospital Militar de Lima in Peru which is where both of my, my parents are from. They actually met in the Peruvian military, and uh, they came out here because my father got a scholarship to go to college actually in Haverford in Philly. So my pop came to Philly first before he came to New York. And then from there, he went and got my mom, and then we came up here. Mm -hmm. And uh, ever since then, I always tell people, you know, my dad experienced and other Peruvians understand that that was a very dangerous time in the state. Not just dangerous in terms of a war between CIA-backed paramilitaries and a shining path, but also an economic war where Americans just now are beginning to understand the concept of inflation. Mm -hmm. And I want to say something important. Peru went through three currencies in five years. So as much inflation as we may have during COVID, because I think COVID masked mass inflation, mm -hmm. people were like, oh yeah, it's just the, the disease. Right, right. But now everything's worth double, 30%, 40% mm -hmm. up, right? The highest transfer of wealth up. Similar case in Peru. The rich people there were still rich, but everybody poor, they went to the store and their money was worthless. Imagine somebody telling you that $100 bills only worth $20. Then two weeks later, that $100 bill is barely worth $5. And then they tell you these bills are worthless. They don't mean anything anymore. So my father, he got one of them visas that they give people that are smart. And they were like, yo, listen, we want to get out of here. We have stuff to teach you about here. We want you to run, run like weapon systems or whatnot. So my father, he was really good at sound, right? See, my father can't sing. He can't carry a tune. He can't even sing happy birthday on key. But he could tell you everything about sound and the modulation of waves and things like that. So when I was a little kid, I used to go to his office and look at the oscilloscope. And he wasn't like the big professor. He's just like the student there. But I would be like, oh, da, da, da. so the professors loved that I was like a sponge, like a little kid. So I learned about magnetism. And then, of course, I was forced to learn a lot of different languages because we didn't know where we were going to live. So we ended up coming here to Harlem. And at the time, 
my dad thought that it was a good idea to move his family from Peru to find peace here in New York City, in Harlem, in 1980. So oh, you're wow. going to understand how crazy this place was. Yeah, bro, insane, insane. So we came here we like came between like the Peru, late 70s, early 80s. Right, late 70s, early 80s. So top. we came here, top of the 80s, and New York City was a different world than it oh, is now. Man. Like, for example, I went downtown on, um, I think it was July 4th, to see the fireworks display, right? And I was like, Dad, what is that? And there was a pile of wallets and purses on 42nd Street when we were walking downtown. And my dad said, that's what the pickpockets left. I'm not lying. That's how it used to be when I was a little kid. They was like, and I, I'm shit you not. They didn't care what was in the purse. These weren't valuable Gucci bag. It was just a bullshit JC bag. There was like 20 purses. And like, I'm, when I mean like a leather wallet that looked like this, the wallet was ransacked like the tongue was ripped out yeah, yeah, this was backwards this was everything i was like Getting oh my god and then throwing away everything wow. but it was a different city right i it saw city. violence drug abuse in the middle of the street it was just like yeah. robbery people would walk up to you like yo can you give me money and niggas just got a gun like and my dad would just, he'd be like moving me away from the people that are robbing other people it was just yeah, yeah. it was a lot it was a lot of city. <laughs> how old were you Came here. Um, I was roughly two and a half. Okay, so basically all your. Life but most of, for most of my. Know what you really know. Right. I think what the the big difference with me and the reason that I can still speak Spanish and I know a lot about my culture is and not not necessarily that you have to do this, mm -mm. but when I was seven years old, um, I went back to Peru for the summer, and I stayed there, and my dad was. I don't know how to describe this to y'all because it's a, it's a foreign concept to kids these days, but my father was a scientist but a survivalist. In other words, he believed that a city kid's life was not enough. So he used to take me out to the woods in the middle of like rural Pennsylvania and he would teach me how to swim a river, right? He would teach me how to move with the current. He would teach me how to fish. He would teach me how to hunt and know what food is the right thing. Like he was just, he said also to me though, something I'll never forget. He said, listen, if an emergency happens in the city, don't run to the country. Every stupid person from the city is gonna run to the country and they don't know how to live here. They don't know the difference between the mushrooms that make you see Jesus <laughs> and the mushrooms that'll kill you. So don't come out here, stay with what you know. Yeah. But my father firmly believed that there would always be some kind of crazy shit that happened in this country. So right. he was always like, you have to be prepared and you yes. have to be ready. So as a young kid, I just grew up having a lot of teachers that taught me things that were important about yeah. my life. And as it stands, I'm blessed not just to be healthy and still alive, but I'm blessed to have learned at the feet of so many wise people. I'm blessed to have sat on the shoulders of Buddha, so to speak, in so many different rooms, you know, because it wasn't just my father that had words of wisdom, it was the whole neighborhood. Right. So, that's super interesting, because one of the big benefits for somebody like me coming from Montreal, and a lot of people watching this, is that we don't have the full context of what life was like back then, and typically how we, wind up, we start this, it's a, we have a big convoluted question, but the short version of it is, 
the sounds and the music and stuff that we hear as little ones impact us greatly to this day. And a lot of times when people go into the musical exploration of artists, we only really focus on our attachment to music, which tends to start more in an adolescent era. So I was really hoping that you could kind of like describe a bit to us what the music and the sounds and the influences that were around when you were in that like five to seven age and what the vibe was like because you were in the 80s in Harlem and again that's I as you described it completely I, 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 I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one story there's a there's a, a coffee shop in Harlem now it's a fancy little um, Japanese Korean spot at the foot of there I'll show you where it is we'll walk like 20 blocks we'll see it I'll drive <laughs> I remember one day they were like oh there's going to be a street festival here tomorrow and it was KRS-One and like Fat Joe and Rakim and I always remember after the show Chris stayed to talk to people about wow. hip hop and was wow. just like I must have been like 6-7 years old this, wow. was, this was 1985 85 wow um, also up here they used to have um, uh these Grant Memorial festivals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I was explaining so to them about all the time. Too. When I tell you this was this was when the culture had not shifted away from boom bap and the original hip hop. See, some people have to recognize that hip hop, regardless of the criticisms it may receive now, it's in the lineage of black music, right? Absolutely. In the same way, country music, it's in the lineage of black music. It's just the blues for white people. Right? right? That's what y'all doing. Y'all talking about the blues. It's giving you the heart and soul. They may have a silly southern accent to some people, but to the South, man, they just telling the real. And when I hear the stories, I'm like, okay, I can't automatically assume y'all racist because y'all doing this music. Y'all talking about being poor, white, having no support from the mm -hmm. government, having no support from anybody else, and y'all trying to make it. So what? What's the only thing y'all been hanging on to this whole time to make y'all feel superior? Hmm. Some shit that don't even give, they don't give a fuck about you. You learned that the hard way when they gave you $600 for two years and told you to go kill yourself. So it was like, to me, I saw the impact of all that music. And what I saw up there was the lineage of hip hop and jazz and reggae. Because that's what they played up there. It was uh, Guru who would come there. Branford Marcellus was there. Anybody who played any wind instrument. Anybody who, there was people from Benny Goodman Orchestra. Old as hell up there. And they played live, right, live, Midnight Marauders and the People's Instinctive, the, all that live, the whole record, oh, so the whole record, dude. The, so not only was the jazz live strong, but the jazz people would, would bring the hip-hop artists the hip -hop. in. Wow. And then there were reggae bands, and they would have people just freestyling over the beats because you know blues is in the lineage. That's where... A lot of the, the reggae, soca, a lot of the, the, the rhythms. But we, yeah. as, 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 even as so-called Latino people, because we're indigenous right. to this land. Just indigenous facts. The truth is that a lot of our music, and that comes from Africa as well, and we've been yes, in denial absolutely. about that. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's for a variety of reasons that we can get into later. But it's important to note that salsa, bomba, all those were oh, in right. the lineage. But the, the thing that answers your question is that I got to see the lineage live. I got to see the progression of the show because they didn't start with hip-hop. They started it with blues, R&B, jazz, reggae, and then hip-hop. It was almost like a timeline of a show. That's what made it so ill. So in the beginning, the old folks would be there like, oh, yeah, here to see my jazz. By the time it's 1 o'clock, the old folks is going home, and a whole new crowd of people is here to see the hip-hop. Oh, wow. 
And so it include like literally the whole community. But the it's also community. super interesting now because especially where I'm at, people push it in boxes pretty heavy, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, yo, it's if I'm, I'm all about boom bap, I'm all about this, there's nothing right. else. Or I'll drill or I'm all about broad the broads and the girl music. I get it, I get it. But in this case you're saying that even at the inception points it really was a cultural exploration mm -hmm. of all of it, but including everyone in the experience, which is the opposite of the attitude that a mm -hmm. lot of people put out today which I find just mad interesting. So you're like in the 80s out here watching this all come to life and whatnot. And at that point in time, are you just like a fan of the culture or do you already have aspirations of getting yourself involved in it? I could rap ever since I was about maybe nine years old. So I knew I had a so gift to be able to that. Right. So but, if you're seeing that at seven, meeting KRS at seven, yeah. you're knowing how to rap at nine. So it's right. literally like a couple of years later. A couple years later, um, I think, for example, we had to do some presentation for school, and everybody's doing some sing-along, sing-sing bullshit, and I'm like, nah, I'm not doing that. I'm going to spit a verse, <laughs> like the people on my block, like them kids I got. And the other thing that I want to tell people is, as much as people say, oh, this city is a segregated city, it is, bro. New York City, don't, don't, don't let that, and whenever I hear conservative freak shows scream about how liberal New York is, I think they don't seem to understand. This is a red line city, homie, okay? And when I came here in 1980, black people did not go to Bensonhurst. Otherwise, you might fucking die, okay? So white people that came up to Harlem were usually here to buy drugs That's unless it. they were part of the community. And, and the, the, the Latino and black people, we knew who the people were from the community. Oh, that's Michael O'Brien. We know him. Yeah, yeah. His family done lived here for 40 years. He's on the basketball team for the Hawks. Uh, okay, here we go. So we know the people yeah. from the... That's the one thing mm -hmm. I remind people about the big city. Please don't play us like we don't have a community or a neighborhood here. Right. I know people. I know everybody in Harlem in, in a certain side. I know who the neighborhood crackhead is, bro. We yeah. know him. And, and, and it's not like we use that as a colloquialism because really now we have a different terminology that have to be sensitive to people. Right. And I'm not angry at that. Sure, it's a person that has an addiction to drugs because realistically, the other thing that I'll explain to you that is riveting about this time versus that is that during the 1980s in America, drug addiction was seen as a moral failing. It was not seen as a disease. And right. that's incredibly important because every single person who's ever smoked or drank or had a family member that was addicted to something, the government's position was it's your fault. You're a low-class individual. You have no self-control. Right. You are right. a sinner, right? right? When you realize all the people who run the government sniffing up, Oh, does that make yeah. you a sinner? You doing way worse shit than way these worse. people out here, way right? Worse. They smoking a little crack. They're not touching nobody's kids, no. you Oof. sick bastard. Yeah. Like, this is what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's to that level. So I looked at it, and I absorbed it, and I saw people just destroyed by drugs. And that's, I want to be honest with you, that's a reason. And you'll, you'll be surprised, bro. I've never done, people say, oh, man. Nah, I, I know Peruvian coke. Never I tried Peruvian coke. To... No, nigga, this shit is making rock stars go broke. I'm not messing with heroin. Yeah, nah. Nothing. My whole life, I, I've seen a person leaning as a little kid, and it scared me because I asked my mom. I remember being like six years old. I'm like, is that person a zombie bomb? And the person was like, like this, like they couldn't move, and I was like. 
I was, it was a little traumatizing as a kid. I'm like, what's wrong with them? And my mom said, they have a disease. Like, the parents knew. Your parents The knew. people knew. They say, I'm sure that person wants to be normal. They want to be good. Right. But they started getting addicted to something because yeah. the brain doesn't know the difference. And then, as a young person, I learned that addictions are not just mental. they physical. So it's even worse. It's like, if I stop taking this shit that's killing me, it's going to kill me quicker. Right. Right? So... At what point does, do people, one, accept some personal responsibility for what they did, but two, at what point does the government tell people, well, you're not an evil person, you just have a disease? And I think that point is when a lot more rich people and the children of people in power begin succumbing to this disease. And that's when, unfortunately, it became an opioid epidemic right. and not a drug war. You declaring war on children. You declared war on families in this country. That's what I saw growing up. I saw a drug war. I saw police that lived in Harlem that their job was to rob drug dealers. They weren't out here making, the, making money the nice way. There's, there's an old article uh, about a precinct, the 30th precinct. It's right down the block. Matter of fact, if you want B-roll, I'll show you right the fuck where it is. You get it. It looks like a fortress. They arrested 30 cops there for being part of the biggest drug ring in New York City history. Wow. These people were extorting hundreds of millions of dollars, people say, from drug dealers. And they only confiscated like 20 million. But they say that at least 100 million worth of drugs that they confiscated and then were taken out the evidence room. Basically, they stole the part of American Gangster with Trupo in them when they come in and cut the coke and then put it. That's the dirty 30. That's where they got it from. That's what, what was going on here in the city. And I remember as a little kid, when they sent a cop to my school to ask, hey, da, 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 I, I raised my hand. And I'm like, officer, what should we do when we see a police officer rob a drug dealer and take his money? And the guy goes, I don't know if that really happens. And I said, <laughs> on my corner, I could sit you in a car and you sit there and exactly three o'clock, you'll see them. They don't even hide their badges. And the teacher was like, all right, we got to move on. You know, these little niggas be on their shit. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Officer, for coming to see us. But I guess in that sense, the other thing that hip-hop has, and that was pure at that time, was it had a real fuck you spirit. Right. Like, the, the generation before us, they're the civil rights generation. The please, can we be part of America generation. We not that generation. We're fuck you, America. We know you molested my grandfather, right? Let's talk about what slavery is. People don't want it. They think anything left of hunting the homeless for sport is communism, and then any mention of racism is CRT. But the truth is that in this country, unfortunately, they had a tier system for justice that still exists now, that in many times we've seen every plantation in the world full of cotton on Django, and we think that's impactful, but it's not, because the most plentiful plantations that existed in this country were the breeding plantations. Have we seen one of those on TV? Have we seen a, a, a girl who's barely 11, who's gone through menstruation, who's forcibly mated with another individual to create people? We haven't seen that, because they don't want to discuss those things, but they're important because they're a part of how we got here. Like, even when we discuss how messed up Canada's becoming, you can ask them Native Americans how messed up it's been. Yeah, facts. So I think it's, like, listen, the fact that Trudeau did whatever he did now, that's like the 
the fifth thing wrong with this man, because his father was in charge of some of them residential schools where they found thousands of children underneath, and that's not a conspiracy theory. No, it's so we're, we're just talking about what it is, and I think that was so impactful to me to see and to experience as a kid. It's also interesting because it ties into what a lot of those guys like KRS-One and them who are creating the music are also experiencing this in that environment and that, especially for people that don't come from here, we hear the music, but we don't have the, the rest of it, the visuals. Like everything you just described is at like a level where I've talked to a lot of people, I haven't heard it like that before. Mm. And like, it just adds these layers to what like how I guess the regional differences play out like why like being a tough guy out where we are maybe isn't the same thing when we're just trying to emulate aspects of what we hear in the culture without fully understanding how it got to be there so these kind of context points I think add a lot of perspective to the people that hear it especially when they don't come from here because nobody's really talking about it like this or if they do it's dramatized into like a 18 minute video that highlights it I think for, for a lot of people, they really, they want to be right. But unfortunately, I know of, I, I've, I've met people online and I know my friend's kids, they learn the word globalization and the next day they think they know more about the world than everybody else. <laughs> and I explained to yeah. them, listen, this is a multifaceted, multi-tiered society. It took years to set up this system. What you think you have figured out now is a piece of it, Right. And when I give you another piece, it changes the perspective because we're talking about political science. If we find a bone of a dinosaur and all of a sudden someone says, well, that's not really the hip bone, that's the leg bone. Uh, uh, this animal is actually much bigger. This is the hip bone. Yeah, it, it changes, changes the structure. The right? For example, we just found out that they had feathers. Yeah. A few hundred years. Uh, they've been have feathers for millions of years, but we didn't decide they had feathers until, until years, a couple right? years ago. Yeah. So I think in that sense, people have never, one, they've always exoticized uh, uh, black and Latino people, but also I think that at some point there's, hasn't, there hasn't been enough humanizing stories about us in media, right? It's like if I go to, to the middle part of America and I hear somebody be racist... There's a part of me that thinks this person is an idiot and pathetic. And then there's a part of me that almost feels sorry for them because if I was a white person that grew up in middle America and my only access to black and brown people was Fox and whatever's on the news, yeah. then I would grow up with a very skewed perspective mm -hmm. of what society is myself. If I thought that it was all, okay, taxes equals communism, I would say, what about the great Republican President Eisenhower who after World War II, are you listening, children, raised taxes for corporations to 90%. He said, y'all been, been double dipping. He said, matter of fact, you corporations, you've been triple dipping. You, you, you pilfered the American public just because we was at war with the Nazis, the same way they did during Afghanistan and, and, right. and Iraq. Either right. one, Bush and Obama. They played that little game. But he said, no, no, no. You gotta pay up. So in order to restructure the country, for four or five years, he taxed them out the wazoo. Now, was Eisenhower, Republican president, probably one of the greater ones, a communist? No, he just understood the, the sanctity of 
making these horrible companies pay taxes. And when we discuss reparations in this country, automatically white working class people get angry. But I'm saying it doesn't come from you, Steve. It comes from the financial institutions that built Wall Street on this. It doesn't come, the majority of those payments don't actually come from white working class workers or your taxes. The majority of those payments would come to people whose You built your stock market on this. You built your trading factory on this. We were the capital for capitalism. And you pretended we forgot that. And then when you talk about reparations, realistically, and I had this conversation with another brother that is on YouTube, Dr. Boyce Watkins. And he brought in an individual, Dr. Claude Anderson. Uh, He wasn't there at the time, but he explained about his uh, uh, conversation about reparations. And the truth about reparations is that African-American people are not asking for just reparations. Wait, they're asking for the other half of reparations. See, one half of reparations was already paid to slave owners in this country. So they got their money. They paid for children, for women, for the people. We'll reimburse you for the liberty of these individuals. But the people, they got nothing. So they're waiting to get the same slice that these trading houses, bank houses, Bear, Lehman, Stearns, all them people downtown, Everything they have, every building, every block, where did it come from? What was the capital for that? Even when you talk about uh, 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 down payment, when you talk about all these terminologies that people use, some of them come from slavery, realistically speaking. Lay away. Lay away. People don't understand. Yeah, the slave will lay here away while you're paying for it. So it's impactful because... That history has to be learned. It can't be denied. And when I hear people say, oh, you're just, that causes division. No, it causes the right kind of division between ignorance and stupidity. Sure, it's not dividing people as in we're all on the same side because y'all wasn't on our side anyway. You just use the issues that we have, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, they both do it in terms yeah, of politics. They use the, po- the, 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 the issues that we have to placate people right. instead of actually addressing a lot of the issues, which is where hip-hop comes in. Hip-hop right. addressed those specific issues. There was, there was no limit on the things that people could say. You know? And then when you hear the old people rap, you hear the reality that in hip-hop, we had to fight against the civil rights generation when we first started because people came in and see Dolores Tucker and the Reverend Calvin Butts, they were saying, oh, y'all are the N-word. Like they were calling young black artists that, like with a hard ER. Yeah. That's what you want to be? They steamrolled the CDs. And yeah, I was, always remember. I'll never forget the steamroll. Farrakhan came to the hood. Like literally? Like a steamroller? Yeah, yeah steamroller. Yeah. steamroller. Yeah. It was like a whole press conference. Press conference. This. See Dolores Tucker and all the people. Hip-hop is destroying the black youth. So yeah, that's why you, you hear all the early 90s hip-hop. Like if you hear, um, if you hear Naughty by Nature. And he said, tupper, 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 tupper. Cussing wasn't nothing till a black man rapped. Right? Mm. So he said, you mad at curses, but I hear curses on TV. Now oh, you're trying God. to shelter yeah. our stuff, right? And then KRS, America was violent before rap. Fact, of nice. course. So if we're discussing any of these things, we're putting it into a light that's not gratuitous. Now, sure, people are putting murder out just because it sells. But at that time when the culture was invented, it was for a reason. Also, graffiti had a political spectrum, and that's what people don't understand. And especially since hip-hop comes from Jamaica, 
let's not leave this out. Political graffiti was huge in Jamaica. And if you see what in the it? Supercat video, they say right there, they show police murdered Calvin, I think his name is Harrington, David Harrington, but it says right there. And that's what the Jamaican neighborhoods would do. Whenever a cop murdered somebody, they would put up a saying. And here in America, they said, oh, no, 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 don't just put up the saying, put up his face too. So the mural culture comes from that. It comes from political graffiti that says these people killed our friend for what? Yeah. Because he refused to move his house? Always us trying to find a way to memorialize and, and give a voice to our voiceless selves. Right. culture is a protest and uh, yeah. just another expression like uh, at the inception points. Because I don't know a lot. Of, I know a bit about graph writing, but I don't mm -hmm. really know that much about it. Because I know there's a lot of crime elements attached to it. So people don't Sometimes, speak as yeah. much on it in right. my experience. But that's super nifty. So like... It's it's just it really is just another element of this core counterculture that was fighting back against the social injustices. So it's really not about the specific genre of music or anything. It's more about the intention. Right. In the same way that, for example, I used to listen to all kinds of music because I wanted to sample different stuff as a little kid, and I'm like 14, 15, thinking of stuff, and I ran across death metal, and I was like, yo, this stuff is crazy. And I had a long conversation with a brother who did death metal, and I'm like, I get it. The demonic images are not because they're saying they worship the devil. They're saying that even though I look scary, I'm not half as scary as the people who have nice suits, right. who really worship the devil. And if you could see what they look like, they look like these disgusting figurines that we show in our stuff because that's what oh, their is soul that, is. Is that what they right. mean? And if they, never that's what I'm saying. Yeah. With but, but I'm, but, but I'm saying if, if there's nuance in that, why can't right. there be nuance in our culture? If, you, if Hollywood can humanize Hitler. Right. But you can't have Farrakhan on TV. Farrakhan, who came to the hood, and I don't agree with yeah, everything no. that Farrakhan no, said. Either, but but, I have a respect but he came one. to the hood and he told yeah. a group of young black and brown men, just remember, when you call a woman a bitch, that's a terminology that you did not invent. And I said, huh. Still out here calling women those names and being disrespectful and racist on the low. Here's the problem. We, as a culture, understand that this government just cares about itself and that it manipulates people because it needs one half of the poor to fight against the other half. Hip-hop wanted to turn the tables on that. It wanted to show society how different it was. And so we come from the Black Panther generation. That's the OGs of hip-hop because we said, we're tired of begging to be part of this country. I'm tired. I don't have to sit at a lunch counter and someone pour a, a milkshake on my head to prove that I'm an American. My father died for this country. My grandfather died for this country. My great-great-grandfather built this country. And therefore, I don't owe you a fucking thing. And when I met Elder Brother Smitty, who was a Black Panther, mm -hmm. he, he, he took me under the wing. And he said to me, I need you to map your whole neighborhood. I want you to do the map. And then he explained to me, you know the Black Panthers were just like you. And I said, what you mean? They were kids. They were all kids. He said, I didn't actually belong to the Black Panther. I'm a member. He said, but I belong to a different organization. And I said, which one, Smitty? He said, I belong to the BLA, the Black Liberation Army. And I said, huh. So I looked them up. And the BLA was basically all Vietnam veterans, which is where the term blood actually comes from. The, the, before it was ever a gang, 
Vietnam veterans called each other blood. That was the name for black veterans. Blood, what up, blood? What up, blood? No, 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 no. And then slowly the culture shifted. Wow. But Smitty was a blood. The OG, not, not Pyru, not any of the sects. Right. OG, 1969, I died. My man died in Vietnam, right. and I carried his head home to his parents, and the PTSD will live for me forever type right. shit. But he's the one that broke it down and would say, okay, brother, fundamentally, we understand that we're dealing with this society, but you have all the activism in the world, you need protection. So the Black Panthers were majority teenagers. So when they would get brutalized and beat up by a cop or something, Smitty and them would show up. And I swear, I, I will never see this again. But dude showed him something. I, I, he, they brought out a BLA member. It was in front of Grant Houses. And he showed a cop a medal or some shit. And he said, you can't turn down the fair one. Otherwise, you hide him behind your stripes. I had never heard that term as a kid. I asked my friend in the Marines what that means. It's when an, an, uh, an NCO calls out his officer. And he says, you can't hide. You got to throw hands. You got to shoot the fair one. And I swear to God, the cop took his belt. He had the same thing, the same tattoo. They was both in the Marines. He understood what it was. He said, you just hit my nephew. I'm sorry. You, have, you cannot hide behind you. The nigga took his shit off, and they shot the fair one. And the cop caught the worst of it. But he had to. And it's just like that type of stuff you don't see no more. They, they'll call it in. But back yeah. then, it was so fresh. It was like Vietnam was 10 years ago, bro. Right. You got to give this to me. You know I fought in the right. same trench as you, sucker. You don't talk to people like that. You wouldn't talk to me like that if we was there. You talking to him like that because he's a little kid. And I, I, I was just like, is this real? Is this really going on? So I got to see stuff that, I, that just doesn't exist doesn't no more. happen anymore at all. And it made a really big impression on me. And I understood that everyone in this society has leverage. And everyone has a history, bro. Everyone has a history in this country. Everyone, man, you've done some disreputable shit, bro. And, and America's built off that. And unfortunately, we don't realize it, but that's why I always called Muhammad Ali America Spartacus. Because since the beginning of time in Sumeria, in human history, in time in Sumeria, in Egypt, there was a thing called conscription. Ancient China, Europe, they all had it. And Muhammad Ali was the one that ended conscription in the United States. In other words, him standing up saying, no, I refuse to go kill these people here for what? For what? Yeah, for what? And as a Muslim, I say no. And as a Christian, I, I, another Christian should have the conscientious objective, right? So because of that, we don't have a draft in this country. That's crazy for people that don't realize, but they replaced it with a selective service, meaning that if the country declares war on a global scale, that you're automatically all getting drafted. So. And I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure <laughs> they put a little, there's always a little yeah, fine print. Right? I'm pretty sure that in between that happening to now has influenced the drastic increase in military um, uh, enrollment stations Absolutely. all over the ghettos of so, America, period. So that, that must have been like when they started pushing it in Hollywood as well to the degree that they did because somewhere around mm -hmm. that when Muhammad, uh, sorry, I think it was Muhammad Ali, mm -hmm. he was, that was in the 80s and whatnot. So if that happens then, it breaks it. 
it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Like China. Mm -hmm. but no, like, but you touch on a good point. But then it's like immediately after that, you start seeing the American hero, the war hero, the and I'm ninety percent certain CIA like, are the uh, good guys, the right? Military defense. <laughs> the, they they do pay Hollywood crazy money exactly. to make these movies with the particular intent of getting young kids specifically to want to join the army. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up. Do you remember when I when the 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 Top Gun revamp movie that came out? When I was a kid, they had Air Air Force recruiting like little stations yeah. outside the movie theaters, waiting yeah. for kids to come. I'm dead serious. When they came out, they gave away Top Gun from Nintendo if you would sign up. Like they gave you a video game if you would sign up. And I never forget my dad who came out the military. He walked by. I was like, oh, what's that? Can I play the video game? And my dad said, listen, do you know out of everyone that goes to the Air Force and there's millions of people, do you know how many people they let fly the planes? <laughs> out of a million people, probably a thousand. He said, do you know what percent of a thousand a million is? And I, what percent of a million a thousand? And I was like, no, dad. He's like, figure it out. And that was my assignment. And he was like, it's like 0.1%. I'm like, what the fuck? Y'all not flying nothing. Y'all swabbing the decks out here. That's what y'all doing? Y'all sleeping in the bottom of the battleship? This what y'all want? Go ahead, That's man. That's how they got a lot of young but, guys. But the truth is, what he brings up is incredibly important. Yeah. This society Market. became extremely militarized. And when we talk about other countries that spend whatever on their military, it doesn't even compare. Because not only do we spend, but then you bring up that entire Hollywood structure has been geared towards pushing whatever war we have, whatever thing we have. And I think that's the part of our society that is the most frightening to me because I see us becoming closer to religion. And one horrible thing that I remind people is that I disagree with the combination of church and state but not for the same reasons that the United States was, and I'll explain. I don't think that it's just the church that corrupts the state. No, I think that may be true, but more seriously and more disgustingly, the state corrupts what people think the word of God is. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer this war in Iraq. It's a holy war in mm -hmm. Iraq for this, for, for Jesus Christ, we must fight. Right. This is what people have been doing for years. Yeah. They've been having Christian jihads against that's other when, people for years. That's the Crusades right now. In many ways, but importantly so, as an anecdote through history, half the Crusades were not even against Muslims. Half the Crusades took place in Europe, and they were against Christians. The Cathar Crusade, the Livonian Crusade, right? Um, the Fourth Crusade, the Children's Crusade, the Hussite Crusade. Right? All of these things. As a matter of fact, during the Cathar Crusade, that's where people get the expression, kill them all and let God figure them out. The Pope and his men came to the south of France and they found this little town that was inhabited by half Christians, like Catholics, and half Cathars. The Cathars believed that Jesus was lesser than the Father. He was a creation. That did not fit. That was not, the, 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 that, that was not canon. So we got to get rid of y'all. They went to the town. And the, the, the Pope legate says to the, the Duke at the time, he goes, but aren't there Catholics that live in the town? He said, yes, I believe there are. But God knows who his people are. He said, kill them all. Let God sort them out. That's where it comes from. 
from religious fanaticism. So wild. When we talk, so when we talk about the trajectory of the left in this country, right, the fake left in America, which is really neoliberalism. It's not Democrats don't represent that, but the trajectory of the right is towards religion and state coming together and what they call the theory of the seven mountains, which I never see discussed on podcasts. If you look it up on Google, the theory of the seven mountains are the seven things, the seven parts of society that conservative Christian ideology wishes, wishes to take away and make religious. One, education, religious education. Then the military should be all Christianized. We shouldn't have other people fighting in and all these little things, education, economy, all movies, everything has to be created to fit the white Christian mold of this country. So unfortunately, there is a, a real confusion, I think, in the political lexicon of how this country functions now of where these two trajectories are going. The Democrats are never going to go communist, okay? They're a center-right party. When you call Joe Biden a commie, he's nowhere near. Like, listen, in the infrastructure deal, Right? There was less than 2% for infrastructure in this trillion dollar deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not Joseph Stalin. <laughs> infrastructure, 2%? You know what this means? Right? The best part is when I, I, I get in, in, in touch with my MMA homies and we all sit down and they're like, yo, you know what should happen? I'm like, what? Yo, the fighters should just take over and form their own thing and kick Dana White out and make all the money themselves. I'm like, my man Che Guevara over here, like, what you, really? You know what that means, right? You know, we could put all the dressing on socialism, and the, but at the end of the day, it's simply the workers control the means of production, right? right. In America, <laughs> we have this idea that, like, if you talk about capitalism, you could have capitalism that is predatory, and then you can have free market, which is just right. everyone. When America goes to another country, it don't set up a free market. It sets up a monopoly. It doesn't right. say, hey... Anyone else here want to make some money? Oh, yeah. No. Call up all those black-owned companies and yeah, see if they yeah, want to no, help us pilfer this gold mine somewhere in Nigeria. No. They no. say, let's set up a monopoly. Yeah. And the reality is that I think hip-hop, to me, when I came to this, to, came into like who I was as an adult, addressed these things in a way that other shit didn't. Yo, it's wild. Because like, I was thinking a bunch about just talking to you. And uh, in 2008, I bought your Third World album. <laughs> Thank you. And that was the first time I'd ever heard a rapper actually speak on a lot of the topics you had put on there. And in a sense, via your own actions, you got me to years later end up learning a whole bunch of stuff because you talked about a bunch of Google points and whatnot that nobody else had that I'd heard before. So like, as you're saying this to me, I'm like, wow, that's like literally the epiphany I had about you all that time later, like this week. I mean, I appreciate you a lot, man. To me, all I've ever really wanted to do is be able to facilitate these type of conversations with people. And I, I put it this way. I've come to the realization that when you talk about terrorism, the vast majority of terrorism that we've experienced as human beings have not come from individuals and have not come from small splinter organizations. The vast majority of terrorism that people experience comes from government terrorism. Yeah, right? So as a kid, my dad gave me this book about fascist governments, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't just, he's like, listen, anything can descend into fascism. You talk about, they think that's the extreme left, but it, it could be the extreme right, right. it could be anything. Oh. So he showed me this thing um, and a series of, of military papers, and one of them was um, 
something called Operation Blue Star. Right? I never heard of this before. And then a lot of the people that I went to school with, they were Sikhs. And when I told them I learned about this, they were like, what? You know about this thing? So in 1984, the Indian government gave out lists, party lists of people who were Sikhs in order for their society, the, the people from their side to go assault these individuals. It revolved around the death of Indira Gandhi and then a series of bombing their temple. But the point was the government did this to its own people. When you talk about indigenous people here, the government did that to them. Right. When you talk about experimenting on people, yes, the government did these things. But the government has a limited application of what it does, right? The government does not make airplane companies. Right? No. It has to have other people do that. They have a contract. But here's the thing. America's economy functions like a lemonade stand, mm -hmm. right? Because everyone says, oh, we're selling lemonade. Fine. How much was the pitcher? Hmm? How much was the pitcher, little Susie? Did you pay your mom for the water? Did you pay your mom for the sugar? Did you pay your mom for the lemons? Did you pay your mom for the cups? No. For the stand, for the chair, for the time? No. No, you got a subsidiary, didn't you? You got <laughs> communism from the government that gave you money, and now you got all these. America has a lemonade stand economy, and it's never come to terms with that. And when we experience terrorism in this country, whether it's in America, whether it's in Chile, where the government turned on its people after 9-11, or whether it's in India, the, pursuit, the, 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 the persecution of the Sikh people, you see that anywhere in the world, the government is the, pur the purveyor of the most amount of terrorism, not individual people. And even when you talk about the individuals now, like... I, I had a big blowout with a lot of people on the fake left at the end of the Obama administration because I said, this, this, this abomination in Syria, this isn't helping anybody. No. And the people that you have there, they're Al-Qaeda. Like, I, I, I went nuts. I, I was like, look, I know that WikiLeaks isn't perfect, but I was like, look at this. These people are from Al-Qaeda. Weren't we just fighting these motherfuckers 10, 12 years ago, and now we're paying them to go kill people in Syria? And... and and there are people on MSNBC saying that this is acceptable. You were the same people four or five years ago telling us that the war in Iraq was an atrocity. Absolutely. Now, when we bring up war in general, you could say, yes, well, technique, what about the Ukraine? Hey, that is heartbreaking to me. And that is disgusting what's happening there. But let me be very clear. When American media says that the Russian people don't know anything about what's going on in the Ukraine, I think that's a double-bladed sword. Because you're right. They're ignorant to the vast amount of war crimes. But I would say that the people of Russia know about as much as what's happening in the Ukraine as the people in America know about the atrocities that took place in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'll bet my life on that. Yeah, because, yeah. because they showed us countless pictures of people dying in the Ukraine. And not once have I seen you blow up an innocent person in Iraq. Well, why are you hiding the footage? Is it because it wasn't a glorious victory? Right? Why don't you turn the body cam on? It's not to protect us. It's to protect... You. I was just having a conversation about that, about how after the after the Vietnam Wars, when they saw when they saw the backlash that the American when the American government saw the backlash that they got from the American citizenry mm. because they were still airing, they were doing right old American right, tactics, right, right. right? Let's air this war for you to see how great we are at war. We're the best. We're killing everybody. Look, we're gonna put it on TV. Us killing these people. And when, they, when the youth backlash against it, that's when they stopped airing wars. And now all they show is uh, airstrikes and the aftermath. 
of war. But, you didn't but before, they don't show anything during the war. They don't show us killing out in another country the way that we freely kill in other right. countries. Well, the way that they freely kill. I don't like associating myself with people that I'm not associated with. They also like use drones. And uh, drones are super impersonal. Like, mm. I went to Pakistan during Obama's administration. Uh, it, was, mm. it was when the Malala girl was talking to the UN. It was during mm. that phase. So while I'm there, their perception of the United States was unexpected. They were, like, irate. On the one hand, the American government is giving them money. And so I'm like, however the American government right, to, to the elite upper crust of society. To the government of Pakistan. <laughs> Trickle down economics, yeah. Simultane no matter where it is, it's just them pissing on you. <laughs> simultaneously, they're sending drones constantly to certain provinces uh, at the exact so the same time. They're giving them money and bombing them. At the exact same, and I'm like, it was so confusing. Like they, they did not know how to react to America, but they, nobody in Pakistan saw Obama as a good president. They saw him right. as a war criminal. Right. And I was like, wow, that was. And then you look at it, and you're like, that guy sent. I believe he sent more drone strikes than Trump. I might be wrong on the number, but we're relatively speaking. I think when you look at the information, um, Obama, and one of the biggest criticisms about his presidency is that the drones were functioning off what they call metadata. So it didn't matter who in possession it had, it was basically a strike target. But here's an interesting thing. I went to Afghanistan in 2009 because I, I opened up an orphanage with a group called Omaid.org. Uh, and um, it was run by Afghan sisters, um, this, this sister and her husband, really good people. Um, and we built an orphanage and a school for 20 children with the proceeds from the third world. And one thing I, I saw is I went to bin Laden's old hideout. They brought me there. And they said, this is how precise the U.S. missiles are. This is how precise they can be. Not only did they hit the, the, the building that he was in out the whole compound, they hit the side of the room that his bed was in, that he sleeps in. So you're telling me that you can do that? And Afghanistan was very similar. Because it's like, yeah, we, we, uh, we, want, we don't want the Taliban here, but you bombed the wedding last week. And it's not a coincidence that those people are opposed to your occupation. And you had a precise strike on bin Laden's target 12 years ago, and now you don't now know what you, you hit. You, can't you know what you target. hit. That's you know what you really hit. really good plan. You know what you hit, like bro. That. Like, how about this? When there's, like, I had mad, mad friends of mine in the Marines, so people don't know this, but um, I used to... <laughs> I was going to go to OCS when I was a kid. I was going to become an officer in the Marine Corps. That's what I thought my destiny was going to be. Um, so I used to run with them in the morning at like 5 o'clock. And a bunch of them like came back. And when they came back from the wars and, and everything in Afghanistan, they were just like, yeah, people, they know. They, like, they understand that they're being played. And one of the greatest things that, that I kind of brought back from their experience was people around the world think that America kills all of its friends mm. and makes friends with all of its enemies. Who are its friends now? Vietnam, that's an ally they're using against China for their issues in the South China Sea. They're friends with Japan. How do you become friends with somebody after that? I don't know if I could be friends. I don't think we could call like, it friendship. But, but again, strategic resources. Yeah. Right. But... All of the people that it had in its pocket, Iraq, they were in the pocket. Yeah. Saddam Hussein, they went to war with the Ayatollah for them. Right. Gone. 
all the people that had this kind of, and I, I, I really, really, I really took a minute to absorb what my life might have been like if I hadn't gone and gotten myself incarcerated. And when I came back out, it's not like they didn't want me. They were like, yeah, you can enlist, but you can't be an officer with a criminal record like that, you know? And mm. you have multiple assault charges and multiple, you know what I mean? It's not like there's just one. We were looking, we were willing to look over all this shit, but now you have two where recently, this is where I really went and got incarcerated for. I broke um, two people's noses here in New York. One random kid I used to go to school with, sorry about that. And then, um, no, I'm being real, I'm being real. And then, um, Definitely another, another, another kid, uh, just some rando. And then I went to school and I got into a big brawl and yeah, we hurt someone real badly. And I look back at that part of my life and I just think that it was dominated and controlled by just a lot of egocentric violence. Um, the, 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 feel, the, the need to feel that you have to correct people from disrespecting you. Um, and that mostly comes from individuals that live in a society where they find themselves powerless. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's important, and I would never tell someone to not complain and not air their grievances about things, but I remind people that the rest of the world is looking at you, and when you complain about things, you give people a clear message. And the clear message is that I'm not in charge. Because the people who are in charge, they don't complain. They just get money and they do what they fucking do. And they don't give a fuck about what you have to say. Yo, oh, that's wow. a big one. So I, I just focus on doing things right. And as of late, I've been trying to keep that same energy. I mean, you've definitely done a lot with your career to do the right thing. I mean, just to take album proceeds and to go open an orphanage in Afghanistan mm -hmm. is above and beyond what most people get up to. Earlier today, we were with you yeah. when you were helping, and I had looked. Oh, I'll the, tell you that story, sure. I had looked on the website, and I, had, I was telling the homies, I was like, Shh, the, the, the GoFundMe that you have for the actively helping, it's like, yo, you raised a lot of money, and you really helped a lot of people. Everybody looked really grateful, and it was like just you, a couple other people, just really out there doing it. Mm. I mean, we have to follow city regulations. So for the entire pandemic, if you serve food, you need gloves and a mask. You just need to be patient and you need to understand that the people out there, and mind you, I'm not trying to play politics right now, but New York City had a horrible mayor called de Blasio. Yeah. And he's gone now, but he canceled these people's food program. They had a food program in Grant for 14 years, bro. And you're going to cancel it? I can say this now because he's not in office and I don't have to be afraid of the political repercussions. But... Dude, for 14 years and then in the middle of the pandemic? Yeah, no. So I said, all right, I got to step up. I went to the store, a fairway in, uh, in uptown. I walk in there during the, the start of the pandemic and I see two old white ladies fighting over a bag of avocados. I see someone else shove another man. I, I go and get my toilet paper. I go get toilet paper. I damn near had to shoot the fair room with somebody over 12 packs of toilet paper. I had to pull out the taser. I'm like, yo, make the fuck out of here. He's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> My parents can't deal with that. Yeah, no, they're, they're 70 years old. Yeah. So I said, here's the other problem. I'm not a spring chicken, right? I was born in 1978. So back when I was a kid, TV had 12 channels. 
right? I'm showing my age right now. There was no internet. I'm older than Google. Stop. Right? Same here. Gang, gang. <laughs> the TV, you know, nowadays the TV has a 10,000 channels. And for elderly people, it's very confusing. One channel tells them that there's no such thing as COVID and it's all a farce. And the other channel tells them, you're going to die tomorrow. You need to put a bag over your head. So they don't know what to think. Whereas we make it very clear and very easy. Please stand in line, social distance a couple of feet away, and we'll take care of you. And what we basically did is we copied the Black Panther Party breakfast program, except we did it for elderly folks. And we said, in our community, in the black and Latino community, and there's white people, Asian people in that line too. So I say in our community though, the elders genuinely take care of the kids. So that's why we give away Pampers and all that kind of other stuff to them so that while mommy and daddy are out and grandma and grandpa are home, make sure that they have some for the kids. We also, we also do Pedialyte and we have it there, but we basically give out a two week food pack. Um, and that's been something that the community has been very dependent on. People, they've been kicked off uh, social security. Some people have lost their status. We don't require them to give us a card, to give us a name, to give us anything. And now the, the, the precinct has become familiar with us. The whole neighborhood knows who we are. They know we're out there doing good. Right. Like if I see one of them cops on the street, I'm not going to say hello to y'all. We yeah, don't yeah. like each other. Right. But you know I'm doing well, something good. I don't bother y'all. Right. right. So you don't come bother me. I don't ice grill y'all. I let y'all mm -hmm. walk right by me without saying a word. But now they know, okay, these people, they're doing good things in the community. So whenever they, they come by, we're not bothered. At first, though, they popped up and they were like, what are you doing? What are you giving away? And I'm like, food for people? And we had to be very careful because they were like, live food? And they opened it up like, whoa, whoa. I said, I'll give you a sample bag. Go ahead. No, no, no. But it has a good ending. Right, right, so I right. said to them, I said, no, it's all canned goods. I'll follow the city regulation. Then we went inside the Jackie Robinson Center here at Grant. We had a conversation with them, and we actually signed up to become uh, the NYCHA food program that covers them every other week. So uh, we started doing this at Grant Houses. We went to Albany Houses in Brooklyn, right? Marcy, all of them. We, but that, those, Marcy was once, Albany Houses was... We've done Albany probably 20 times. Actually, you know what? When we interviewed Slim, I do believe that he was in the middle yeah. of helping for Albany. Yes. Like the bags and the van for Albany. Albany, and then another one called um, Dykeman Houses. But the one that really kind of breaks my heart is whenever we go to Isaac Houses. Isaac Houses is in, um, man, I don't want to cry on camera, but. Isaac House is on, on 90th, it's on the Spanish Harlem. And some of the residents, they so old they can't leave their house. And it just reminded me of my grandmother. My grandmother really recently passed away. She was 105 years old. Wow. So she was super old and like when I see them people, they always remind me of her. So I'm blessed to be able to help those people. And that's just good food for the soul. And during the pandemic, bro, my whole life changed. Everything changed. That's something that I can do immediately. And now I can funnel that money. Hey, man, is this getting low? Because we started out with about $90,000, right? And we've been doing this every week for two years. Yeah. We started March 2020. We, I'm sorry, April 2020, when the pandemic really hit. Right. We were the only cars on the April. street. 
the same that so the same month that Vice passed away, rest in peace, Vice versus Eo Dub. Um, uh, that same month, you guys started up. But it was actually, it's funny. I, I spoke I spoke to him and a couple of other people. I was like, Yo, I'm gonna do like this charity thing. I'm gonna be out there. He's like, Yo. Assassin. Assassin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yo, dude. He was like, yo. But everybody that I knew was just happy to hear that we were doing something. So the program, we got some light. But I'm gonna be honest with you, it's hard to do this uh, and not try to get more visibility for it, right? Because we're not clout chasing, we right. just want people to see it, and yet it's frustrating because sometimes I'll see on Worldstar like some random MC such and such giving out money to people and I'm like, okay, real. cool. Not, I mean, right, you, you know, we know you're doing it for the camera. Right. This is something I've done every week, right? So 52 times a year since right. then, every so time, and there's probably, right, times. we've documented every time we do it because we have to for... For, for, for money's sake, but we don't print all that online. Right. We definitely uh, just post the numbers, make sure we know, and just like I learned with Afghanistan, um, it's not enough for there just to be a charity. The charity needs two things. It needs transparency, and it needs believability. So what we, we run is what's called a red ribbon charity where over 90 to 95%, but in our case, it's 95%. Over 95% of what we bring in goes just to the goods. In other words, the salaried employees, the volunteers that get paid $15, $20 an hour, I pay them out of my money, not, that, not this. Maybe one day when a charity gets its 501c3, which it just got, but it has to, be, it has to get approved first, so we already got it locked for the city. It should come in in the next month. Once that happens, I'll put it out again for people, and they can donate, and it's all tax deductible, right? And they can get tax breaks, and major companies can get tax breaks for doing it. But the other thing that I had to do is not just transparency, but integrity. And integrity, right? Integrity, integrity comes from showing people mm, right. that... You don't belong to nobody, that you're on your own, right. that you don't fit in a box, that right. you have to break that box and get out of it and say, I'm going to put up the first 10000 myself. And then other people said, oh, this is really happening. Technique put the money in, let's put the money in. When we had to fundraise, and we fundraised about $125,000 for the orphanage in Afghanistan, I put the first ten in. Why? Because I saw that the Afghan community felt like they were being fleeced. They felt like they're being hustled because everyone was saying, I'm going to help. And I said, no, I'm going to go there. And I think representation is great, but ownership is better. Mm, yeah. And showing up for people and calling them, that's good. But when you actually <laughs> knock on the door, they know you care. Yeah. So that's what we did. We knocked on the door. We went to Afghanistan. And that was something that changed my life. Can I ask you a question about charity? Sure. So on the subject of like how you 95% of your stuff goes to the right places, I mean, part of it is you have the means to do it, but I find the big issue with like bigger charities, because my girlfriend had worked for a not-for-profit, is, is the overhead of salaries. Like just 
like my girlfriend had to eat and she wasn't getting paid crazy money but you count the number of people and how much money they need to make a year is the real solution to sell uh, to charities then to keep them small scale and to not let them become these giant conglomerates because the question. overhead question i don't think people fully understand how much money goes into actually running a charity when you're mm -hmm. at that kind of scale without corruption just the most honest charity in the world you're still probably looking at a quarter million dollars a year um just in salaries minimum and that's everyone making 40. right i mean i think Which that brings that, that, that brings that brings up an important thing um yes i think they're more functional when they're slightly smaller more interpersonal with the community. I think a larger world charity can get to places easier than some people to help, but that's because they have become this giant monster machine. So when you look at something like the Red Cross, a giant amount of this goes to the overhead for the people that work there. But, you know, I get it. They're coordinating, they're working on stuff, they're in an office, but at some point, there's a lot of pork in that barrel, right? Yeah, At some right, point, someone's cousin gets a job, Absolutely. someone's brother does right, something. Right, right. At some point, it becomes nepotistic. Yes. And I think that uh, it was the great Robert Michaels who said that whether it's democracy or, or whether it's communism, eventually they all have to fall in line with the iron law of oligarchy because that's where they all go to. And in many ways, we don't call them oligarchs in this country, but that's what we have. We have plenty of rich oligarchs. Yes. And if you have the benefit of being associated with one of those people, well, they don't pay taxes, right? That's what people seem to understand. In this country, I'm gonna just break down because it's totally related to what you said. We have this image that there's the upper class, the middle class, and the working class. But Marx and Adam Smith, in other words, Communism and capitalism actually agree on one thing, that there's people who own the means of production. That means that you're the boss. And then there's the worker. The idea of the middle class is not actually anywhere in, in, uh, in capitalism's writings in its original, in its original foundation. That doesn't exist. Right. It's just the, uh, the, the object of mercantilism, the mercantile class, right? Mm. That's what you think you are. You're not the mercantile class because in this country, during the pandemic, you had people that realized, oh, I'm not middle class, I'm a worker because they just shut everything down for me. That even though I have a nice house and a good job, I'm worth negative $500,000. I know doctors that are worth negative $400,000. And you people have to, have to find reasons to operate on people to pay them back. Unnecessary surgeries, doing shit you're not supposed to do. And there, in line is the corruption of the system because what are we really doing here? Right. And then, so, it is such charity get played in the taxes? Charity, to me, and the way I saw that affected in this is, I think that overall, all human beings are charitable people. Right. I think that all human beings are born naturally with empathy. And I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not trying to analyze anybody who's watching this, but I think you have to have something terrible and traumatic and horrible happen in your life for you to not be able to feel empathy for other people. 
you have to have really been fucked over by somebody. And I'm sorry that person hurt you, but you have no right to take that out on other people. You have no right to question the sincerity of other individuals that are involved in this. In terms of the charity that we've done, we have covered every single base that we possibly can. Now, the charity, obviously, taxes, all these other things, once you get the official 501c3, that's, that's very different. But what I've discovered is that most people are charitable people. And even the people online, when they say, oh, do you need this? They could take it and sell it if they wanted to. But they say, no, I don't need the pads or I don't need the insurer. Or I've had brothers from the hood roll up on us and be like, yo, yo, what y'all got? Oh, y'all got food? And they look at the line of people and they say, oh, oh, no, no, I'm good. They need that more than me. I've seen that in the middle of a pandemic when people don't have a job. When people are still struggling. Which and they, and they still acknowledge that these people have it worse. Yeah. I've seen a good part of humanity. So when I say New York City, please don't think I'm just talking about the negative shit. I've seen the people do the best shit for other people in this in this city. I've seen some right. city. People get it confused, and people. I, I have this as some of those who also travel a lot and tra has traveled the world. Like there's a misconception that people have of New York City being this. Oh, it's rude. Everybody doesn't listen. There's well, we're not person. nice, but we're, we're good we're, people. We're not, we're not, <laughs> not, we're not nice people, we're not but we're good people. Like, you know. Oh, they expect in other places you have less people. So it's easy for you to say good morning right, to right, your right, next door neighbor. Right, right. In New York City, you can't say good morning to everybody on your block, right, everybody on the train, deal. everybody that you pass on the street on the there, way to work. There's a clip on the internet of two people fighting on a platform. And one person punched the other person until they fall into the train uh, tracks. And then they pick them up out the train tracks. That's a perfect That's New York City. New York City. Yeah, that's the, that's watch that clip. You understand New York perfectly. That's amazing. You know, he punched you in the face. You started a fight. You got washed. And you got thrown in the train tracks. But well, homie don't, don't want to kill you. He's not trying to kill you. Yeah, hey, he's not trying to kill you. See, this is interesting. Because being, 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 being a formerly incarcerated youth, I learned something really, really ill in jail. That if two people want to fight, you cannot keep them apart. Nope. But if two people really, really don't like each other, you can hand each one of them a knife and you can find out if they really hate each other. Mm -hmm. Because people who really don't mm -hmm. hate each other, they will say that's not necessary. Yep. And people who really hate each other will say, give me mine first. Mm. That's it. Nice. That's what I learned. And, I, and I've seen people that even in that situation, even in a place like that, where everyone thinks, oh, it's the inmates that are... No, 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 no. That's why I said, and it's the lawyers, not the inmates, trying to fuck you. It because the reality... The right, that's the reality that I faced. And being that I had such a crazy, like, jail experience to the point where I got thrown in the hole multiple times for things that I didn't even do, and they were trying to make me do the full two years out of the one to two, and I literally found a, a prison counselor, and this lady is an angel because I can't find any record of her ever working at the prison and I, I tried, I paid people to find her because she was so kind to me she took me and said Mr. Coronel you don't belong here and I feel like you have other problems in your life that you're dealing with and I was like what? and she basically told me that um, I would probably be better off in like a rehab than I would here so she approved me for a rehab and also the warden at the time hated the deputy warden. And when 
she came to me. She said, I'm going to tell you something that I'm not supposed to tell people. And I was like, what's up? And she said, the deputy warden is just a racist man. And I was like, what? And she's like, this man collects Nazi memorabilia. Oh, like, wow. we're talking about Confederate Whoa. flag, like all kind of shit. And I've heard him talk about black people and talk about, uh, uh, like, Native American people in a really, really horrible way. And she's like, I'm not associated with that. And she's like, I believe that you've done a fair chance. You completed all your assignments. You did all the work you're supposed to. You deserve a shot. But Hill's not going to give you a shot. She said, so I'm going to go over him. And I'm going to tell the warden that you deserve a rehab shot. So they gave me the rehab shot. And as punishment for making the rehab program, the deputy warden shipped me to Max Pond in a different prison. And they moved me from my minimum security place to a medium security prison. And I was greeted at the door with them beating the shit out of a woman inmate that they were intaking with cattle prods. And the officer turned to me while he was shocking the woman on the floor. And he said, if I'll do this to a white bitch, what you think I'll do to you and I was like, what? Hard ER, hard yeah. yeah, and I'm like, and he said, get up, bitch. <laughs> like, like, on some, like, yo, dude, it was like watching yeah, the last scene of Return enough, of the Jedi. Nigga was like, like, yo. Her right there while she's on the floor. And I'm seeing this, and I'm like, and, and yo, he said the right words, though, because all the black and brown people looked at each other, and yeah, he was like, yeah, like, if he beating the fuck out this white lady, bro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm we not went even in there. Trying to test somebody we went that. in there. Open your mouth. Do this. Do that. And it's just like it's so invasive. Even to get a visit, bro. Like, okay, I, I, no one ever, no one ever beat me up, knocked me out. Nobody ever violated me, took my manhood. But, and it took me a lot, long time to admit, bro. Those people humiliated me in there, bro. That system. Every single time I gotta see my mother. You got you, you to gotta make me lift my ball sack, right? You got to open my mouth and put a tongue depressor in there. I got to turn around in the showers and squat to make sure that I didn't stick something up my ass. That's dehumanizing and that's humiliating. And I understand the protocols and reasons for it or whatever, but that didn't stop me from feeling some kind of way. So my prison experience wasn't about having beef with inmates, Motherfucker, I knew jujitsu. That, that, that ain't the same as, 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 as playing boxing with niggas because when they want to box with me, that cell is small. I'm going to lock you up and I done put lots of people to sleep. And I tell them all the time, I said, yo, bro, please don't talk to me no kind of way. And I remember a, a dude, he tried to test me one time and he called me the F word. I don't use that kind of language anymore. But I remember I, I, had, I had him in a rear naked choke and I put him right to sleep and I put him on a, on a tier floor and I told everybody, the OGs, I said, listen, if I really was what he called me, wouldn't I be fucking him right now? And everyone got quiet. And I went home to my cell, and I looked in the mirror, and I didn't feel tough. I felt embarrassed because I realized that these people turned me into an animal, that I didn't feel proud of beating nobody up. I didn't, I didn't feel proud of committing violence. I realized that that's what they wanted from me. That's what they prayed for. They said, we want this violent, stupid person to do this. Because the worst shit he could do is be smart. The worst shit he could do is teach children. So when I got out of prison, I was given an opportunity by Harry Belafonte and a sister called Carmen Perez to teach at a school called Horizons. And Horizons is the primary detention facility. 
in the Bronx, right there. And um, it used to be Spofford and Horizons, but they closed Spofford because of all of the, like, the federal like, violations. People died, children died there of like meningitis and shit like that. That happened on the island recently. The, the, the meningitis medicine is $38. Bro, $38, man? You couldn't get this kid? What the fuck is wrong with y'all? Come on, man. And I get it. I get it. There's very little sympathy in, in, in the citizen community for people in jail. But these people, they didn't kill nobody. They didn't touch nobody's kids. They didn't rape nobody. Right? Those are the people that run your government. No, but right? even still, $38 to save a life, even if they did bad things. That's the whole point of being in jail. That is the punishment. In but, theory. But I think that's where, in, that's where in it gets kind of crazy. Because as a, as a kid, there's a reformer program. But as an adult, there is no rehabilitation program. Like that is taken out of the equation, in a sense. And for me to experience that as a young person gave me the will to go back and to teach. And I just, I always remember the class that we taught um, through Harry Belafonte's organization called Sankofa. It was myself and Carmen Perez. And we taught a class called Confronting Trauma Through Writing. And the kids just wrote stories about all kind of stuff that we didn't know if it happened to them or it happened to other people. But these stories are heartbreaking. And I, I remember watching a, a video of a psychologist who worked in a prison and he was working with young children. And the story he told was not the same as the story I heard, but very similar. And it was a story about a young person, a young kid who was put in detention because they say that he molested his older brother, his younger brother. And so they brought this kid to prison. They had, they had beaten him up in jail. He was 12 years old. No one had talked to him. And finally, the prison psychologist sat down and said, I need to have a conversation. You can say whatever you want. And the first three times, he said, the kid said nothing to him. And the third time, he said, hey, man, do you want to just write something? Write whatever you want. And he said the kid wrote a story about how there were two brothers. And one of them was being sexually assaulted by their stepfather every night. And so in order to protect his little brother, he put a battery up his little brother's ass so his little brother couldn't get raped. And the school psychologist came home and cried. And I didn't read that exact same story, but I read stuff that affected me like that. And I get it. It's not explainable. It doesn't make sense to a nine-year-old, eight-year-old that would protect a four-year-old by doing that. But if that's being done to him and no one knew about it, then it's, it, it just it, it boggles the mind. So I just tell people that's the reason why more people aren't teachers. They're not helping people out here. That's the reason. Because it's a toll. It takes a lot on you. It takes a lot to hear stuff like that and still keep pushing. It takes a lot to deal with that and still have to go out and do whatever you're supposed to do that day. It takes a lot, yo. It's, it's very, very emotional. Um, but I think those are the scars that people don't remember that they have. Imagine if you got hit by a car and you never went to the hospital. You would probably limp because your broken bone would never heal right. But if your trust was betrayed, if you were beaten or, or, or tortured or assaulted as a child, then most people trust regularly. They trust like this. Oh, trust. Trust. You don't trust like that. Them kids trust like... Nah. 
Fuck that. Yeah. If I go, if I caught. All right, cool. And, and, and you have to learn to understand and respect someone else's pain. So I, I know some of y'all have seen me on a long journey. I used to argue with strangers and rip them to pieces online for fun. I used to troll people. I used to fight people in the streets. Some of y'all know me from being a high school bully, all right? Some of y'all know me from being an animal out in these streets. And some of y'all know me from being a good person. And I guess all I'm trying to say is that I had a long journey and a good character arc. And I think that I've come a long way and I, I, I want to make uh, and continue to keep making positive changes in the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, you are definitely one of the more legendary characters out there. <laughs> yeah, no, facts. I mean, listen. Any last questions, man? Like, <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, honestly, I've seen it, right? Like, and, and uh, you know, I, I've never questioned your integrity with anything. You know what I mean? You've always been solid about everything. I mean, if Holden has a question, I mean, we had, I had a whole bunch, but like, we just you know what I mean? I also figure maybe one I'm day we'll get a part two. And we'll, no, no, we, we'll, we, you know what, real quick, let's go over EO Dub and how I got started there. Yeah. Cool. So, um, I was invited down to this thing, um, and it, it was an open mic at Baby Jupiter. Right. Um, way long time ago. And I just showed up and they were letting anybody get on stage. And if that's one thing I could say about the golden era, it's that the only thing, and I, yo, there are things that people say are great equalizers in this country. Fuck that. The cipher was the greatest equalizer I ever seen. Because if you were nice, people were forced to respect you. I mean, white, Filipino, black, okay. a, it don't matter, bro. You nice, people are like, yo, who's that? And they come in the cipher. I so saw somebody I, talk about, to interrupt you real quickly, yeah. I saw somebody talking about you, um, he knows these names better than me, what's uh, Aesop Rock? Uh-huh. Aesop Rock. I forget, you guys were at a school jam or something. Slug atmosphere. No, was, no, 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 it, it was, was, it was after, it was after the Rocksteady battle. Mm -hmm. uh, the Rocksteady battle on, uh, in 2000, so in, in 2000, I battled... Uh, out of 144 MCs, the only last two left standing were me and an artist, man, rest his soul, my old friend, Idea. Mm. And Idea mm. and me had three battles, and that was the first one. Um, he won in overtime. We battled to a tie, and they made us do overtime rounds, and he took the overtime rounds. And the last overtime round was an acapella round. And I was so mad that I fucked up the acapella round that I went home and I worked on nothing but acapellas. And I am now the master of acapellas. <laughs> I start to show with them. I can understand how to ad lib. It's very easy for me. I will never fuck that up again. Thank you, idea. Because an amateur practices until he gets it right and a professional practices it until he can't get it wrong. Mm. So. I caught up with Idea later on because Slug and Atmosphere had a, had a show at Wesleyan and I just assaulted him. I was like, nah, nah, we're not done. And I just started spitting at him and he came back at me and I would say I got the better one of that. Slug has that footage though. And Idea was like, yo, dude, you were really mad about shit, huh? And he was like, yo, you came hard today. He was like, yo. And then there was another time we was on the radio 
in Minneapolis, and then after the radio, we had a little thing, and I would say he got the better of that. So two out of three, you got it, my brother. Rest in peace, idea. The I love you, man. that lives on YouTube, right? like, <laughs> I saw people talking about it like, yo, because it's not titled with you guys' names, I don't right, think, right. and it really is just like the top comments, like, yo, can you believe it? Immortal Technique, mm -hmm. uh, just all these names all in the same video that it's like, you guys, like, later on, you know, like, yeah. same as EO Dub, right? Where, like, a lot of people came mm -hmm. not realizing at the time, in the moment, the legend that would come and be born out of just that congregation and those congregations that you guys put together. And so I, you I saying, think EO Dub, to me, was that great equalizer, that great cipher that people could always count on, always go to. And I think one of the things that really encompassed the spirit of EO Dub was after 9-11, like I want to say a day or two after 9-11, it was Sunday, and people were like, yo, are we going to have an open mic? Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, we have to. We got to. Yeah. And... Yo, they were like, what should we do? Should we ban people talking about that shit? Like, we, and niggas was like, you can't ban people from saying shit. Nah, 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 let them rap. Yo, people got up there and like open mic, like sharing their stories. Somebody told, wrote a poem about a friend of theirs that died. I was like, good God. We and just then, interviewed Verbs oh, who literally God. mentioned this All same this. exact date. The, right. the, like that, uh, him and then Danny, like his sister, right. like these. That is a date that they have cemented in their mind because, right? New York City's never gone through something like 9/11 before. Where there was a trauma, there was like a, 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 a fear factor. I've never seen. And then everybody was together, right? flying over the Bronx, right. super close like that. You know. Yeah. Um, so, like, for the energy to be what it was in the city, and for. EO Dub to still open up their doors and for guys to still show up to like express their truth, their feelings, get their emotions out that like people are still, there's still people dealing with uh, their emotions behind that to this I, day. I, but you know, you bring that, you bring up an important point. Just so the fans at home recognize something, I want you to look this up on your own. More police in New York died of 9-11 related illnesses this year than of getting shot. Okay. And when I talk about the government, don't give a fuck about y'all. What did they do? Did they, they, they gave them them little, them little surgical masks that people were trying to use for COVID. They gave them that to breathe downtown. And the shit that blew my mind is, at the time, Elder Brother Smitty, right? God rest his soul. He introduced me to another brother you can find on TV called Aton Edwards. Aton Edwards is a survival expert. So Aton Edwards had a whole hazmat suit with the gloves and everything, and he was yelling at the cops and firefighters, like, what are you doing? What the fuck are you doing down here, man? You know that stuff gets in your eyes? You gotta put goggles on? He was giving them gloves and making them tape it. He was like, bro, when you get home, throw all this shit away. You can't come to work the no. next day with this thing. Same thing. Like, it's the, the same uniform that bro, you just had all that on? There's a, chem there's a chemical lab in there. There's a bioweapons division in there. Rudy Giuliani, idiot, was supposed to put his command center in a basement, right, in Brooklyn. Where was the command center? Where was the counterterrorism command center? 90th floor of Tower 1, or Tower 1 of them. 
Yeah, it blew up. That's why he was in the street the whole time. It wasn't because he was brave. It's because he fucking moron put his command center in one of the buildings that got blown the fuck up. You didn't have a command center. You didn't have a counterterrorism command center. Bro, this is what I'm saying. I didn't know any of that. So that's why he's in the street with the fucking bullhorn. And it's weird because I, I met so many people at this time that were just regular people at the time. The people that were protesting downtown, it was me and Luke and a dude named Alex from Texas that became Alex Jones. Like, dude, this that, that was it. Wait, really? I just watched your Alex, Alex Jones episode. Me and Alex. I've known Alex for 20 years, bro. <laughs> I watched known that you episode. for 20 years, Alex. But, I'm, but, I, but I, what's serious about this, Wild. he was downtown with a bullhorn, and, at, and, and we were all yelling on the bullhorn. What happened to Building 7? Nope, Tower hit Building 7. Dude, I've always known people like that. I mean, a lot of individuals talk about high school because I think everyone laughs that somehow me and Lynn Manuel made the news. But he wasn't the only famous person I ever went to school with. Like I I went to school with uh Chris Hayes too from MSNBC. I went to school he was way before me was but that I, the guy that was interviewing Young Jay MC when I'm that, not sure. Okay. But then um He's much younger than me, and I feel bad, but because he's in jail right now, I'm not throwing, trying to throw shots at him because it's all love. But I roofed this brother's handball once. <laughs> um, what's his name? He went to my school, Shoddy, uh, uh, Six Nines manager. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah. He's he's nah, he he's six years he's six years he's six years know? younger than me, right? So I'm there right. hanging out with the brothers. I'm smoking an L. This little handball comes. I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know better. Mom, this thing flew up there. And he went back to his homies and he came back to me like, you know, when a little kid. Come on, Technique. Why? And they didn't call me that back then. They're King Rask, why would you do that? And I said, listen, young man, you know better than to let anything touch me. And he was like, yeah, but it wasn't my ball, yo. He had a nigga 50 cents. I said, they go buy another handball. All right, man, yo, good looking, fam. But that's before he was a gangster. Right, right, He's in right, seventh right. grade, right? I wasn't. I'm not trying to beat up a seventh grader. I just right, roofed right, their right. handball. Just I just no, went to school. I went to school with a lot of people. OG New York City behavior. The, the, you did nothing. <laughs> the, the artist, the, the graph, the famous graph artist, Sane Smith, the one that fell off the bridge. He went to my school too. That's wow. okay. So I, I, I had met and I knew just a lot of people at that your time. School, in New York. Your school, you got at school was what? Hunter. Uh, Hunter. So I went there, and it was interesting because at that point, I didn't understand the term code switch, mm -hmm. but now I perfectly understand it. Like, I went to school at a place where people were like, oh, yeah, da, 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 and I got in because, again, I was good at math. My dad was in the military for science. But you weren't already <laughs> code switch yet. No, I did it easily because okay. I spoke multiple languages. Okay. So as a little kid, my father would force me to speak French to the people who lived in Montreal. We were talking off camera about right. Montreal. And then um, when I was a very little kid and I moved to this country, I was just learning English. So my dad used to take me to the uh, Natural History Museum downtown on, like, uh, on 79th Street. And in order for me not to have an accent as a little kid, because he said to me, unfortunately, you could be a scientist in this country and be a better scientist than a person that speaks English correctly. But if you have a certain type of accent, they're going to look down on you. The French accent, 
they'll always kiss your ass because it's a European country. But let it be the Spanish uh, accent, the, the, the Haitian accent, an African accent, Indian accent. They'll look down on you. He said, don't give them that. So I went to the museum with my father, and he used to make me say the names of all the dinosaurs in there. So when I was a little kid, I knew the difference between a pterodon and a dinosaur. A pterodactyl is not a dinosaur. You're from a totally different family that includes a Rampharynchus and a series of other things. Now, if you want to talk about the headstrong dinosaurs like a Pachycephalosaurus or those other things, sure, bring the paleontologists in. Let's have a wonderful time. I learned all this stuff as a little kid because my father was like, don't. This society is tailored against you. You have to survive. That's like, still okay. a lit way to teach English and shit. No, it's a, no, it's a great way for you to master language, especially too with all those, all those vowels and all right. those words. And I mean, so I got into the school because I was trilingual at a very young age, wow. and um, I just was able to communicate with people. And then um, I wasn't really, really good at sports except soccer. I was really nice in soccer, and then. Um, I was a chess champion as a little kid. So that's something that always affected me because I won a lot of tournaments and I went to four national championships as a little kid. And I remember being young and learning the game from my father and getting to a point where it wasn't fun to play him anymore. That's weird, right? right. It's not fun. Like, you wanna play with me? Mom, I'll be there in four minutes. <laughs> like a cocky little kid. Right. And I remember my father used chess to teach me a lesson. Awesome. I was out here, uh, I got caught writing graffiti, breaking a law, and some stupid shit like 11, 12 years old. Cops stopped me. And um, they didn't arrest me, but they, 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 they told my parents and all this other stuff. And my dad said, there's a, there's a guy from Bosnia in the office that just, that just came to the college. And he said, um, he's the youngest guy there. He's 24 years old. And he said he has two PhDs. So I said, what, Dad? They said, people think he's the smartest kid in the room. He said, but let me ask you something. He don't play chess. Do you think you could beat him? And I said, Dad, it's not a question of whether I could beat him. It's how you want me to beat him. I'll crush him. He said, that's how the police see you. You're so smart about everything else, but this is their game. Mm -hmm. You lie to them, they know, yeah. right? And, and I, he said, I'll do you one better. Don't deal with the feds because they don't already know the answer. They're not asking you questions because they want the answer. Right. No. They asking you questions because they see, want to hear what yeah, you say. Yeah, That's yeah. it. See I was so blown away by that as a little kid. Um, so, yo, definitely, like, not to be a brapa, like... Uh, he gave us an hour, and I believe we've gone way past that. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a blessing, right? Hold on, actually, let's be precise. Let's, you own things, right? Like, we were a few minutes late. <laughs> up to some t generous Big time that the man okay. gave us, right? And not only did he not, like, give us any shit about us <laughs> being late, and then our setup, he gave us an hour past that uh, yeah. time and has stayed with us past an hour so. so Thank you, Tech, so much for your time. Yo, Perspectives Podcast, Immortal Technique. I'm here. Love y'all. Peace. Shout to the EO Dub fans. EO Dub, that's the power of my brother Vice. We love you, fam. Yeah. And y'all can make sure to follow another week at their website, eodub.com, eodub.com. That's where you'll find all their socials. And yo, also, thank y'all for watching, because as much as 
you know, my life just got enhanced by this lovely conversation with Immortal Technique. Thank you. But you all being there, y'all make it a show and y'all make it much more wonderful. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. But for real, thank you for being here with us, especially if you watch this far deep. You went this deep, you're a hero. So take thank care, you. everyone. Take Live care. Live long and prosper. Thank you very much.